going on, everybody? 360 Digital Closing Bell here. I am your humble, humble correspondent, Michael Tanner. We are live from an undisclosed location here in Denver, Colorado. Episode 19 here on a wonderful Memorial Day. Great three-day weekend. We don't have an off day, though. No off days for the show. We are live, as mentioned, from an undisclosed location here from Denver. As always, I am joined by the executive producer, the purveyor of the show, the director and publisher of the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com, Stuart Turley. Stu, how are you doing today? Uh, Michael, I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to all of our veterans and all of those that uh, have uh, faithfully given to our country. Yeah, no, we have uh, definitely appreciate it. I love the green screen you're working with, the flag behind you. I love it. We appreciate specifically Tomcat um, contributing to the show. We really appreciate um, everybody's service. We have a great show lined up. We're going to talk ESG post-coronavirus, obviously the week that's upcoming in oil trading, the 360 official, not official fund. I'm actually going to take a new position out. We're going to short crude oil. Hint, hint. That's what we're going to do. We'll see how that plays out. And then as always, we're going to call up Stephen and Nick. As always, the show is brought to you by our friends at Adamantine Energy. We absolutely love them, and they are one of the leading consultancy companies in the oil and gas sector that are helping companies prepare for social bricks. They are the leading consultants company for that. They're led by Tisha Schuler, who's the former CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. Adamantine Energy is helping companies thrive just like yours and help with their exposure to social risk and helping verify your options and how your responses, how your peer companies are responding. Because sometimes that's the biggest thing, not just what's happening, what you should be doing, but what are your competitors doing? That's the biggest thing. And you know what her comp your competitors are doing? They're reading Tish's weekly emails. They're one of the best weekly emails to sign up for. You can sign up for them at www.energythinks.com, which is just a great URL in and of itself. But please go to that website, sign up for her. Both things are true, which really she's giving insights into social risk and her comp your competitors are reading it. So if you you're not signed up for, please do that. As always, you can check everything Adam at Team Energy out at www.energythinks.com. And as always, please just subscribe to this show, 360 Digital Closing Bell, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. We really appreciate everybody who's reached out and said they've uh, left a result, have left a review and won a shirt. I'm getting there. Coronavirus has been rough for us all. Haven't been able to get there. So I will get you those shirts as soon as possible. Follow, all, follow Intercom and Oil and Gas 360 on all of the social medias. Connect with me and Stuart Turley on LinkedIn. You can check out the Energy 360 Network by Intercom available on the, the world's greatest website, www.oilandgas360.com and iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube page where we drop all of the best energy thought leadership. You hear from all of the gang at Intercom. You know, and we have an interview on Tuesday with the big hitters. Big hitters at Neverland Sewell and the big hitter at Intercom Air Vanderford. Stu was lucky enough to be sitting on the interview. I, it, this was such a big hitter interview. I was on no video and mute, just happened to play sole producer. It was a, it was a good time. It's a really, really great interview. And if you're interested in how the, you know, the official, I mean, these guys are the leading petroleum, um, really res reservoir injury consultants when it comes to certifying reserves, when it comes to public entities having to, you know, because part of FCC filings, you have to have a reserves in there. That's one of the biggest things and these guys can certify that. They're experts when they come back and it was a fascinating interview day. They've got some crazy charts actually, which I thought was really cool. We'll make sure we'll have all of that post a new video when or Tuesday, Wednesday, we have Alex Epstein, author, moral case for fossil fuels. I think it's our fourth, fifth author. Author. Yeah, we have more coming. More coming on the way. We've got some great ones we'll, we'll, we'll tout here very soon. But it was a great interview with Alex, who, who really, he's, he, he kind of comes at ESG, which what we're going to get into in this, in the, in this fir first chat here. He comes at it from, you know, a really the other side of the equation. I really, really, really like it. And it's a great interview. He's a professional, man. He, you ask him a question, he tees up. 
And what's very interesting is he's a he's an energy guy. He's big, he's big in energy. You know, he wrote the moral case for fossil fuels. Philosophy major from Duke. So I know one of the first questions I asked him was, how how do you get in this space? He actually was a, I'm sure he he gets that a lot. So it was a great interview. He's doing a lot of great work. You can check him out at all of the social media. Alex Epstein. His SEO value is great. So you can just Google him. You can probably find everything about him. What else do we have dropping on the Energy 360 network? There's something um, else. Oh yeah, uh, we are actually inter interviewing Buddy Clark. Uh, he is a yes. very, very well-known uh, attorney over at Haynes and Boone. He, he wrote a book Boone. on uh, oil capital, and we're going to be interviewing him as well. It's and a thick book. That's a thick book. And oil capital—it's just basically like the outline I'm give, of. I'm going to give you over, a yeah, if we're going to give know, him a shout out. If you're seeing the YouTube, Stu's holding up the book. It is, it is thick. And really it goes through and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, you know, I, you're going to send me the notes over. I, I don't have time oh, yeah. to read 350 pages, uh, but I do want the highlights. Um, but uh, it, it's just basically an overview of what, you know, from the seventies, eighties, nineties, because of the history of the oil and gas, correct? Oh, it is. And we're going to talk to him because he is on the Haynes and Boone uh, energy tracker. Uh, he mm. is also very current yes. on things. So having a current and uh, post is incredibly important. Well, he's so. the co-chair of the energy division at Haynes and Boone, which is like the top oil and gas attorneys. Like it, so, I mean, like they're primed. Those that's prime time. I mean, there's the big boys right there. So I mean. He's, he knows what he's talking about and it, it'll be fascinating. It's a thick book. I'm excited. I think we're going to, we're going to shoot for like three parts, kind of like a history from seventies, eighties, nineties, and then two thousands. And then hopefully what he sees going forward. It's fascinating because I, you know, every time he speaks on these energy trackers, he's able to pull stuff back from like 84. It's like, whoo, I can't, I don't have that knowledge base. It's crazy. Well, I've, I've enjoyed my discussions with him when I have had the pleasure of meeting him. He is a very, very sharp guy. We'll have to get his, uh, well, I wonder what someone like Buddy Clark, who's been around since the 70s, thinks of ESG. It'd be very fascinating to get his opinion on that. We'll have to ask him about, uh, ask him about what he thinks about this, because we're backing him up with Alex, or we're backing him up with, uh, with Epstein. But I think that's a, you know, that's a terrible segue into talking about really what I think are, uh, you know, something that I think has been brewing for a little bit, and that's, you know, the ESG and, and versus the oil pack. And this is a question that, I, that I, you know, I think Stu and I have been getting over the past couple of weeks, ever really since this oil price crash happened, was, was what's going on with ESG, which is, if for those of you who don't know, it's environmental social governance, as it really as it pertains to, to investing and how it looks moving forward. And it, it, there's a lot to unpack there. It's not as, as simple as, oh, here's my thoughts, because really when you look at, okay, well, what, what, what's going, how do you, how do you project something going forward? Well, it's best to get an idea of what it is really. So what is ESG, where it was, where it was before this monumental shift happened. And then we can best use all of that data to take a guess. And I mean, guess very, very loosely. We're just guessing about what we think is going to happen in the future. And that, you know, and so that's going to begs the question, that first question, what is ESG? As I mentioned, it's environmental social governance. And basically what market watch, you can actually, what I would recommend is going to oil and gas, you know, it's a, it's a market watch article, but we're going to have this article up on oilandgas360.com. We'll title it, or we're going to have some show notes in there. It'll be a, a publisher's note with some title because we're going to put our own stuff in there. But it does a really good job of laying out a lot of the different stuff as it relates to ESG. 
and where it was really before this virus happened. And it was dropped on December 18th, 2019. So it's fairly updated before kind of this virus and price war with Saudi took over and really, really completely you know, absolutely changed the way the industry. And that's, again, why we're getting these questions. So ESG attempts to encompass how a company is performing against a rubric of non-financial risk that can't be measured as a line item in corporations' accounting statements, but it could still harm it economically if incidents around these risks arise. For example, safety. You know, one of the big things that people don't understand is, you know, social governance when it talks about safety. And, you know, one of the biggest things that companies talk about when it comes to this is their safety record. And so that's more than just, hey, we're not going to flare oil, you know, we're not going to flare gas, or we're not going to emit CO2. It, it can, it can step even to beyond to safety and how you, you know, just and how, and how you deal with all that sort of stuff. And, 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 and so that's what ESG, you know, really is. It's very tough to sort of put in a simple box. And really, I think the best person that puts it in a box is Tisha, because she's this is what she spends her whole career doing, is trying to take this, and she's told me this. It's how do you, you know, this idea of ESG is, and, and, and this is what I love about this, and why I like this quote so much from this from this article, is you it, this there's such an abstract, ESG is such an abstract idea, that it takes a lot of thinking, but how do you make take this abstract idea put it in a box and deliver it to somebody because it's an abstract idea. How do you, you know, because think about it, it's ESG attempts to encompass how a company is performing against a rubric of non-financial risks that can't be measured in a line item in a corporation's accounting system, but could still harm it economically if incidents right. It's very hard. That's an app, you know, because now these, these risks that you come across, it's an abstract idea. And so I think that's where the, some of the confusion lies is specifically that you can't measure any of this on a light item, but it's basically how how everybody thinks you are impacting the society. And I, and I recommend if you want an idea of what ESG is, go to energythinks.com. They're going to do a much better job of taking this abstract idea and putting it in a simple box. But but that's what it is. I think I think I think if you at most people I think in the in, in the oil industry know what ESG is at, at, at its core. So I don't want to spend too much time diving into what it means and what it doesn't mean. This is I think just the most comprehensive. Or if you want to learn more, there are experts on this. You should go check them out specifically. And we love the people at Adam at Team. Another shameless plug. So the next question is: Well, obviously, there's an idea of what it is. The question is, where was it? And in terms of how was it affecting the how was it affecting the oil industry? Where was the ESG and the conversation going in the oil and gas industry? Well, to give you an idea, it was on the rise and it was booming. And there's three specific data points I want to spit out: investment funds that were focused on what is called SRI or what's called socially responsible investing. And these are basically funds that invest and they have a criteria that are called, they take, they actually create a criteria that is specific to social responsibility investing. Those funds have grown to 17.67 billion through November of 2019 up from 2.38 billion in 2015. So about two and a half, maybe three years, there was a Oh my goodness, a 3000% increase in the amount of socially responsible funds through November. Second fact, U.S. Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investments estimates that around 12 trillion of assets in the U.S. are managed under some sustainable investment strategy as of 2018. So 12 trillion of assets under managed in the United States have some sort of sustainable investment strategy taped into every decision they make, which reflects a huge growing demand for investments that are aligning with quote-unquote client social values. Here's the third one. Here's the scariest one, I think. Or not the scariest one, but here's, I think, the, the, the hardest-hitting fact. 
practice, according to a survey by KPMG, big four accounting firms. I think we'll, we'll take the data for face value. 75% of the largest 100 companies across 49 countries say they are employing ESG business models or incorporating aspects of sustainability approaches as of 2017 compared to 12% in 1993. So that's a big gap. But over 20 years, you basically have no one in the industry dealing with it to everybody in the industry is dealing with it. And that's what I would consider a 12% to 75% swing. So ESG was growing and it was growing quickly. And how is that, how, how did that, how was that affecting the oil and gas business as it pertains to capital? I think that's what we're interested in. We're oil and gas finance. So how is this growth in ESG? So we're seeing all this money flow into ESG, but what does that mean in terms, how is that hitting the energy business? Well, there's two reasons. This money is all flowing into pensions funds, mutual funds, large um, capital funds that, in, that invest in a wide variety of companies. And these are the institutional players who they deploy tens of billions every single year. And they deploy it into thousands of sectors, every mutual funds in it. Institutional money is everything. Institution, I saw, I, you know, this stat changes a lot because you you know there there you know there's only six seven players in this business, but institutional money is somewhere like eighty to eighty five percent of all capital that's invested is what is considered institutional money. Someone's retirement account, a pension account, um, private equity, mutual fund. All of that is considered is like eighty to eighty five percent of the market. So me day trading at home, I'm nobody. Nobody. I'm a little small guy. We don't, we don't affect the line I am at all, but these big boys do. And the, and then they, and they, and it, you know, you know, I tell people, look at a 13 F file. If you want to know, if you really, 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 really want to know what they're, who, who's investing in companies, go look at a 13 F. 13 F has is public companies like mutual, or excuse me, not mutual, but companies that invest mutual funds, pension funds, companies that have and invest money as a professional are required to disclose their holdings. Go look at any companies, 13, go look at any of the top company or the top company, public companies in the oil and gas business. Look at their 13F. It's the same companies. I'm looking at Exxon's right now. Top five 13F holders, Vanguard Group. Number two, BlackRock. Number three, State Street. Number three, BlackRock, another firm. <laughs> Fourth or fifth, FMRR. So all, all, all pension and hedge funds, all pension and institutional funds on the top of, of Exxon. It's the same. We could go through hundreds of examples. I'm not going to do that. Just trust me. Go look at the stats. It's there. I'm not lying. So institutional money, 80 to 85% of the capital available in the markets at any one given time is institutional money, which has this idea that ESG is a big thing. So how does that affect EMP companies? Because, well, it, it affects them in a lot of ways. I think, you know, I, th I think a lot of people say, well, if that's just where no one, well, that doesn't matter. It's just, well, it's just going to be institutional. It doesn't matter what institutions do. It really matters about the oil business. Well, sorry, guys, oil's not been, they've been making money in the past five years. EMPs had to raise money beyond revenue in the door. We're talking about, you know, we make fun of non-GAAP cash flow. That's just a fancy way of saying we're not making any money, but we've got new loans. We maybe got some new credit lines. We found a new private equity partner. So, I mean, EMP companies raise money besides just selling stuff, besides actually bringing money in the door from selling something and revenue. You know, I love you. You look at a, you know, a, a, a 10Q or a, a 10K, excuse me, on an oil and gas company and 
they, you, you, there's, a, there's some interesting things you see on some of them because it's, they have to list everything they do. It's part of the SEC. So EMP companies, they bring in money all different ways and loans, credit lines, PE money, that all ties back to pension funds because it's all or pension funds and that what we would specifically call institutional money. I should stop specifically calling it. It's institutional money. And I'm going to loop private equity in with that, even though there may be a little more, there may be a little more bullet friendly with the investments then because uh, you can find private equity money who doesn't necessarily care about ESG, but that's a, that is, you know, that's a rare, a rarity to be specifically because specifically the returns just haven't been there and we'll sort of get into that. So that's sort of how ESG and this idea, and that, that's it, that, that's sort of how the connection is made between ESG at institutional level and the EMP companies. And so really the consensus is a, was a mixed bag within the industry. I think if you just took 20 average oil and gas employees, I'm going to leave executives out of this because there's, there are different categories. If you just took employees who worked, you know, specifically that, you know, employees, I think ultimately they're, they would see ESG as a sort of, and I say this, you know, I don't mean negative as a bad thing, but I think they saw it as a net negative. They thought there was some upside to it, but ultimately I think a lot of these people saw ESG as sort of a bottleneck in how to just do more efficiently do their job. Hey, I've always got, you know, now all of a sudden I've got this, you know, I have to fill out an extra report every single day. It takes me another 20 minutes a day to fill out one more piece of paper that says, hey, we have to do, you know, our JSAs, our tailgaters have to be 20 more minutes long because we have to cover all of these different things. I, mean, I think employees, they saw that there was maybe value to it, but I think ultimately, so I'm just, I'm, you know, I, I'm, you know, this isn't moving the needle for me. So why do I have to do it? Because there's no different than what we were doing before. I think you saw executives, and this is why I separate executives and employees. I think you saw executives embrace it. And if, you know, most people listen to this on the podcast, I'm doing that in air quotes. They embraced it. And I'm not making a judgment on whether they enjoyed the embracement or they agreed with it or not. I'm just saying executives embraced it. Because if you look at all of the companies that have specifically, and, and the easiest way to see ESG is just go look on a company's website, go to their, if they're a public company, go to their, or, or, or they're a private company who's, you know, private companies usually not because it really depends on who they're, who's their backer, does their backer care about it or not. Um, but if you go to public companies, all of them have ESG approaches. I mean, go look at uh, Chesapeake, your friends of the show, Silver, Silver Bowl. I looked up all these before. Oxy's got a great page. Continental, Harold Ham, for goodness sakes, has an ESG page. You can go read it. It's on his investor relations board. So executives, whether they liked it or not, are embracing this because they understand how just money flows. Because what's the job of an executive? How do you bring in cash for your company? And that's you know, partly why. Why, do why have executives embraced ESG? Cash. It's all about the cash. Generally, they get paid off one amount of cash they bring in. So how much, you know, how much they bring in for the company, whether it's oil revenues or whether it's access to other forms of capital, whether it's public or private. And specifically, public is how is my stock price going? That's access to market capitalization. Are the institutional players, are the mutual funds investing in my company? Because as you saw Exxon, they don't care if... Bob and Sue and me and Stu sit here and buy a couple shares of Exxon. I don't own a door handle of, you know, I, and my dad used to always tell me when I was younger, he was trying to teach me. He's like, yeah, like basically you buy a share stock works. Like you have ownership of a company. You buy a share, like you own the door. It's like, that's not quite how it works. Not quite how it works. But like when you look at Exxon, it's Vanguard, BlackRock, BlackRock, State Street. Like these are 
large mutual funds that the average person's pension fund or the average person's retirement or 401k, we've all got a 401k, is probably invested in it. Go look at what your 401k is invested. You're probably just in a Vanguard fund. They're the largest, they, they, they do the most amount of liquidity when it comes to institutional investing. So, um, that's the, so that's what it means. That's what we mean by public capital, access to capital on the public markets and institutional. When we look at private, these are just, you know, the, you know, when we look at private capital, these is debt offering senior notes, private equity people, the other institutions that are, you know, all of these funds, 17 billion in, in SRI investment funds, specifically investment is 17 billion. Goldman Sachs has mentioned they won't IPO any company that, that doesn't have a sustainable ESG program, BlackRock, the list just continues to go on and on and on and on and on. And part of the reason why, and this is part of my beef with, with EFT Twitter. I love EFT Twitter for a lot of reasons because they've, they've been hard on shale oil. They've been really, really hard on shale oil and gas. And I think they've been too hard on it, but I think ultimately they they got it right. I think a lot of shale oil was, I don't want to say a scam, but it, there was no returns. I don't want to, you know, the, the theme on EFT Twitter, which I which is just because it's Twitter. So they go a little beyond. They think shale oil and gas was a Ponzi scheme. I don't go that far. I don't think it was a Ponzi scheme per se, but there was definitely not that great of returns. There, if you, you could get in and get out very, you know, you can get, you could have played it well, like any day trade, but over the long term, it just the returns actually haven't been there. But that's not, that's just, that, that can just happen. That just can happen for a period of time. It's, if, you look, if you look over 25 years, the oil and gas industry has grown tremendously. So it just matters what lens you're looking at. If you're looking at a 10-year lens, yeah, maybe it hasn't looked that good. But I plan on being around for a long time. So these little intermediate changes don't necessarily get me as much. And so where this gets with me is, 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 is if you just look at the data, and, and that's basically what, what, what I sort of wanted to do here was lay out the data. And if, if you want access to money, whether you agree with it or not, and, and I make no judgments whether or not whether or not this stuff is that's not my area of expertise. Whether this stuff, how to implement this stuff, what it is, how to actually do it. But what I'm saying is, if it's not a part of your operations, the data is just telling me that you're not going to have access to the capital. And, and this is the other thing that that, that that gets me. This is actually another shameless plug to uh, our great sponsor, uh, Adam Bettine Energy and Tissue. She wrote a report um, about two uh, dropped in December, and this is actually. Uh, a port that I got to help to do some research on. So it's partly what I know. Basically what it was, was an overview of demographic. We, we basically pulled a bunch of public data that's available on, you can actually go check out this GitHub, GitHub at Adam Mateen Energy. It's uh, github.com backslash Adam Mateen Energy. You can find all the data that I pulled for this. I put it up there. Um, I'm eventually going to turn it into sort of a part of it. I eventually am going to turn it into a front end portal where you can log in on our website, download all of this data. And so it's sort of building in my goal is to build sort of an ESG database. For I think it would be, I think, I think there would be a lot of need for that. So if anyone is interested in helping with that, email me there, mtannerintercomme.com. But you can take all of that data. And basically what it shows is it's a snapshot of what does the ESG landscape look like from the public data side. And basically what I, we did was pull demographic data, we pulled voter registration data, and we pulled every, pretty much every poll that had global warming in it. I spent, I did a, I did a we were talking about Feedly, you were talking about an RSS feed. I did the same thing for polling and tried to work back and find all climate change polling. It was unbelievable. And what the data showed me about basically what the public perception of, of oil and gas, honestly shocked me a little bit. I mean, I was, I, I was generally a little more, I, you know, because like I said, within the oil and gas industry, it's, it, I, you know, the general consensus was ESG was kind of annoying. 
It just was, it wasn't a scam. It was just annoying. Ah, I got to do this extra little thing. I got to throw this paperwork. I got to deploy a new page on my website. I have to invest a little more money into carbon capture technology and stuff like that. But when you look outside, if you go outside the oil and gas industry, I mean, the data is clear. I mean, two out of every three Americans think the oil and gas industry is contributing to climate change and that we bear some responsibility to fix the That's just what it shows. I mean, if you go look at this report, it's on, uh, we, we, uh, we should post this on oil and gas 360. We can go to energythinks.com backslash, um, oh, I forget what the backslash, I think mean, it's backslash insights, backslash will Texas ban fracking. It's a lot of, it's, and yeah, and you know, not to get too deep, not to spoil a alert about what the article says, but yeah, everywhere is turning. Colorado has specifically flicked every two out of three Americans, you know, and, and, and so whether or not me, you, and if we're, you know, me and Stu and, and you listening, whether or not we all three agree with that, it doesn't matter because it's what everybody, it, 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 we, we can have a different debate on whether we think that's true or not. And that, conversation is much is, is left to experts not like me it's left to alex epstein tisha Schuler, you know all these guys in the all these people in the industry that know this space better than i do but what i just i'm just looking at the data here and so you know that's that that's what's happening right now and so, so when we act when we ask ourselves moving forward so in light of all of that in light of all of that what's happened well, what do we think is going to happen with esg post coronavirus and, and who knows when and who knows what, but I want to bring Stu in here before I kind of, uh, you've been hearing me for a little bit. What do you think, so in light of all that, where do you think ESG's headed post-coronavirus? Post um, very, very well said, Michael. I thought you covered uh, a lot of it very well. Thank I think post-COVID uh, post, uh, is going to be even more uh, important on ESG. And ESG is being driven not only by the financial arm, if you don't have an ESG current plan that's being worked and demonstrable mm. ESG plan, uh, financial companies are not going to be interested in you. But this is being driven by the consumer. So the consumer is demanding mm -hmm. ESG. The consumer is starting where all this is, is rolling to. So those oil and gas companies and energy companies that survive post-COVID will have a implemented ESG plan. I, I, it's just part of it. There's a couple things uh, that have just come across. And by the way, I want to give a, a shameless plug and shout out to uh, friends of Intercom. Uh, Liberty Oil and Frack, Liberty Frack Services, they are phenomenal about ESG. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, you and I have always talked about good management, good numbers, good people. Um, Liberty Frack also took their, um, when they had to do cuts and layoffs because- I remember of, we covered this. It was 60% executive cut. That's executive deep. Executive cuts. Deep. And, and one, of the, one of the films last year, I'm going to regress just for a minute to give them a, a kudos, was I was sitting there just looking at YouTube one day, and they said, our frack solutions are so good for the environment. They lined up a whole team of their employees and drank their frack fluid. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, that's putting that's cool. responsibility hey. 
right on the line. And I was like, that's awesome. Wow. So yeah. uh, Chris Wright is phenomenal. And I, I can't wait to get you on the interview with him. He is one of the good people out there, but everybody at Liberty is good. That also being said, that leads me up to this next uh, piece of it. And even though the consumers are uh, kicking in, going to be part of the driving force of this, you're going to have not only um, the oil and gas industry having to have an ESG plan in place, it's not being articulated very well to the, um, I don't want to use the word, but the radical um, um, climate folks that are out there that are just saying no fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that just came out is uh, pretty crazy. And it's going to be dependent on whether or not natural gas is going to be the bridge. I'm holding up my fingers in yeah. air quotes for to go to renewables. Um, and renewables is a whole nother topic. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because there's a new technology out called um, the race to zero uh, emissions and it's called the uh, alarm cycle. Uh, it's a new gas mm -hmm. power plant design that can theoretically capture 100% of the emissions while being cost effective and, and efficiently competitive. It's only about 2%, mm -hmm. Michael, in order to capture 100% of the emissions. Now, whether or not CO2 is bad is not the question. Can there's two things happen? Mm -hmm. The natural gas as a organization and as a industry talk about how little impact natural gas, fossil fuel burning gets having one of these bad dogs on it. And then this type of uh, thing is going to be incredible. I mean, that is a game changer. We for... Do what? It is. No, I just continue. I just, I'm, I'm about to agree with you. So go finish up. Oh, don't agree with me. Don't, don't, Michael. I think that if a couple things can happen, the, uh, let's go through these steps. Oil and gas in, in, uh, companies that survive COVID will have a active working ESG plan. Um, uh, Anybody that is, can the oil and gas industry, as an industry, uh, describe that fossil fuels are not bad, and will this have the ROI, because I don't know how expensive this technology is, I have to do some more research on yeah. it, but zero emissions on a coal fire plant? That's critical because you and I have talked about with Gregory Wrightstone. We've talked about it with Alex yep. uh, Epstein. We've talked about it with Tisha. We've talked about it with all of our other Dan and Aaron over at Intercom. Uh, the importance of having um, the energy provided at yep. what? What are we market best market price? Low cost scalable energy exactly to lower people out of poverty, poverty. It's, all, 
Abs, absolutely. So if the ROI on this product and this new technology is there, it that product could be the bridge for the natural gas industry yep. to bring into the bridge for the um, ESG. I don't know. I don't want to use the word left wing, but uh, hyper focused folks, if that yeah. makes sense. Well, I think I think you hit the nail on the head a couple different times, and I, there are a couple different things I want to pull out from what you said and agree with you. So, um, first one oh, is you mentioned education, and that yes. is the biggest topic that I took away from the Alex Epstein interview, which you guys can watch Tuesday, was educating the public on the actual impacts of fossil fuels, specifically natural gas, fossil fuel burning, is critical, and educating people on renewables and the entire value chain of that, which you can check out at the Planet of Humans interview, is absolutely critical into moving forward. So any ESG plan has to have, I think, an education piece to it, because I think educating people about exactly what's going on. But there's also a balance that needs to be truck. So yes, both, and, and, and this is another plug for Tisha. She writes this weekly article called Both Things Are True. This is, a, this is a, another area where both things are true. Yes, we, can, we, we, we understand that fossil fuels and burning natural gas specifically is actually very clean and if done correctly is probably the solution versus renewables. That's, that, that, that can be true, but, it can all, but it's also true that two out of three Americans think that oil and gas is responsible for climate change and that we need to, do, we need to fix it. That, yep. No morals. That's just the data. You go look at every single poll bit. So both things have to be true, and there's a balance that needs to be struck. I think as we move into the future, oil and gas, specifically shale, because it's proven to be, honestly, in the aggregate, a terrible investment, it's only going to become more important for companies spinning up. You know, any There will be no private equity. There's going to be no new private equity companies, I think, that spin up that are going to not have an ESG plan. Because I just don't think that's how it's going to happen. No, no public oil and gas company is going to be able to not have an ESG plan because the institutional funds are not going to be able to, are not going to invest in them. Uh, you know, private yep. equity, you know, as, as I mentioned right before, private equity, you might see some because there are certainly some private equity energy-based ones that they, 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 they could care less about ESG and you don't have to have that. But if from the public side, you're going to try to go public in an oil and gas or you are an oil and gas company that are public and you're not embracing this stuff, you're doing yourself a disservice because the data just clearly shows that from capital, from public perception, I mean, what two things do you care about if you're an executive? How much, what's my capital and liquidity status and how do people like us? Both of those ESG is completely intertwined with. And whether we agree with that or not, we will leave that up to people smarter than Stu and I. Hey, uh, Michael, just as a uh, shameless plug, uh, this is an international uh, item. You and I are interviewing Heidi uh, McKillop. Uh, she is the producer and director for Stranded Nation up in Canada. She has put out a beautiful film uh, and talked about how all of this is impacting Canada. So we will be interviewing her on Thursday. Ooh, well, that'll be fun. I will look forward to that interview by... That's kind of, I mean, I think I've, I, from my end, I think I've covered it fairly well in terms of the things I needed to, to sort of get off my chest. I think, you know, it's my personal beef with EFT Twitter. I think they get a lot of things right. I think they got the ESG thing wrong. I think they think ESG is a scam and a fraud. And Okay, you can believe that personally, 
but you can't let that affect the way you go about looking at how companies are going to thrive in this environment. Because I really think the only way companies are going to thrive is if they've at least embraced this, even if they're making it all up, they have to, you have to have a presence. Even if you're, even if you're making it all up, you have to have a ESG presence. You know what, Michael, if, if the oil and gas executives and the energy executives used ESG, not just as a checkbox, but rather an opportunity to educate the people that follow them on what ESG means to the fossil fuels and the benefits. If they use this as an education platform, it would have a very, very broad effect. I think it's an up, I, and I agree with you. I slightly push back. That's, the education piece I think is big, but I'm spending so much time on education. You're not going to change some of these people's minds. Is it, it seems like you might be fighting an uphill battle trying to convince everybody that fossil fuel. I mean, I'm just, I, I'm asking out loud. It's a, it, 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 I think education is key, but at the end of the day, I, I think there are just, I think the majority of people are just not going to like oil and gas. And there's a way to do that. I mean, you know, tobacco thrives. People hate it. You, you know what I mean? Like it's. A, oh yeah. I, so, but I mean, you got just try. No, you do have to try, but at some, you know, at some point, yeah, you know, I, so trying is good, and that's what you should do because that's the only way you're going to get capital. But at, at some point, you can only educate people so much um, before you're just fighting an uphill battle. But like I said, we leave that stuff to the experts, and we don't touch that. So I think we covered this well. I think it's time to shift into the week that's upcoming in oil and gas. As always, this capital or this. Um, segment is sponsored by Sandstone Capital Group. These guys do insanely good research. They provide all the levels from their energy solution. Please just check them out, www.sandstonecg.com. They're the energy market research experts. I love those guys. Email them, Connor at sandstonecg.com, 949-561-1818. Mention the podcast, 360 Digital Closing Bell. If you don't, we don't get credit. It's great that you called them. We love that, but you don't get credit if you don't mention the podcast. Really, in the week that's upcoming, there's just two stories that I, that I think we, we missed that dropped last week that we didn't cover on Friday, that one of them happened on Friday, so we didn't you know, we record the shows a day before we release them, because that's just how it has to be done. Um, so there's a story that dropped Friday I want to cover. Um, there was a story Monday, though, that I missed, and I'm sort of not sad I missed it, but I, well, we didn't cover it to the depths. You know, one of the big segments we covered uh, two, three weeks ago on the podcast was talking about whether or not we thought the government was going to intervene and what we, you know, what we really think um, how the best way to intervene if, if there was a way for the government to even intervene in the oil and gas industry right now. We, you know, Stu and I's opinion, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're free market guys. So we, we're sort of, you know, we were against proration. We were in each, con in each state, you know, now it's been Texas, Oklahoma, now North Dakota. Um, we were, you know, the, the way that there were some of these, you know, some of the stimulus money was going to, it, well, the ways they were thinking of stimulating just specifically the energy business was, I thought, kind of insane. But what, what they did on Monday was started with the Trump administration just started giving energy companies temporary breaks on their royalties that they must pay for the oil and gas they're extracting from these federal lands. They dropped that rate from 12.5% royalty rate all the way down to 2.5%, which is probably the best method that you could do for helping out companies because about 25% of all oil and gas drilling occurs on federal land. So you're given about a, and generally federal land is done by smaller oil and gas cap companies. It's generally done by that because a lot of that federal land um, doubles as farmland and grazing and like public grazing land. 
which, you know, not all of it, but they back up very similar. So a lot of the same people that offered a lot of these smaller guys, you know, you know no small guys aren't paying a hundred thousand an acre down in the Permian and the government doesn't own that land, but a lot of these federal leases, you can get a lot of these small guys. So this is a great way. I love that the interior department of Bureau of land management did that, that they did, that they did, um, and that they were that they were cutting rates if you could show that they could not successfully operate public energy leases economically or can't maintain enough employees at the actual drilling sites. So that's a great great thing to see. That's probably one of the, it's just, you know I, I wasn't really thinking of that when this all happened. I'm glad the government was, and that's you know proved that there are some smart people there, or I'm just not that swift. So whatever you think doesn't matter to me. I think this is a great move happened on Monday. This is one of the few steps I like that happens. What did, did you have any thoughts on it? Uh, no, I uh, I would agree with you uh, on that as well. Uh, you know, I know that we don't, uh, we believe in the free market, but there is a little bit of a caveat you and I had talked about on the free market, and that is that uh, OPEC uh, and all of these other uh, big uh, conglomerations uh, come up with their own price uh, involvements. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you can't say that the the oil market is a hundred percent free. It's market. not. It's not an efficient market because it's a commodities based industry. So I completely agree with you. There's 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 a way, and I think this is a a good way. This is a decent way to go about it. I, I this doesn't bother me. I think this is actually a great. This is a for a government intervention. You get an A plus. You get the finger dance from. You get the finger. Yeah, dance we hit from the us. we hit the zoom thumb dance. Get the zoom the, thumb yeah. dance. So we're we're that's our little thing we do for everybody to listen on the podcast. The other story that dropped Friday that we didn't get a chance to cover, but I thought was really interesting that sort of pertains to sort of the private equity side of where things are going. Kanye or Kane Anderson Capital Advisor. Excuse me, Kanye. Kane. We should start calling him Kanye Anderson, but Kane Anderson Capital Advisors are going to consolidate two of its private equity energy equity companies and one of its managing partners, Chuck Yates, who's a titan in the industry, is going to exit the firm. Sources familiar with the matter told Reuters. Ooh, this shakeup is one of the largest in the private equity investor in the oil and gas, and it comes as the coronavirus outbreak ravages the energy industry with oil prices plunging below zero for the first time last month. Ooh, Reuters article scary. But no, that's my Reuters scary article narration. But basically, Chuck Yates tightening the oil industry here when it comes to private equity. He's going to leave. He was the guy that was managing their peak, well, basically both of its, uh, uh, one or two of its large private equity teams. You know, why this is, you know, I, why this is important is because these guys, Kane Anderson is the largest private equity investor. When you, if you, you know, our, you know, Beacon Oil, uh, Exploration Oil and Gas Company, Axia Energy, um, Crestwood Midstream, Ensign Oil and Gas, um, Invictus Energy, um, Meridian Resources, Medicine Bow Energy, Momentum Oil and Gas, Plains All-American Pipeline, which is one of the largest marketing companies. They are an absolutely, um, um, uh, one of the largest refiners, you know, friend of the show, David Forsberg. Every time he pulls crude oil stuff, he likes to go to these guys. So, I mean, these guys were the premier and they're pulling back, they're tightening up, they're consolidating. It's, 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 it's unfortunately, this is, a, this is more of a sad sign than, than, than oil price tanking because this shows that they, they, they think even long-term, they think it's going to be a large fight back. This contraction, it's just, it's not sad to see, but you know, there was some, this was just a source of revenue or a source of money that companies could go out and get other than the private, other than the public sector. And so when, when, when you see this happen on the private equity side, it, it's, it's, that doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily excite me 
for the future. Stu, what do you have on the international side for us? The international hey, news desk. The international news desk. Uh, I'll tell you, you know what's fun is the feedback we've been getting worldwide um, is just phenomenal. Uh, you helped bring this one uh, to the attention. I want to give a shout out to you on this one. But you and I had also talked about Iranian uh, yep. bypassing the ships uh, and bypassing uh, the uh, sanctions. And ABC actually came out with this story. We will be having some notes up and uh, I'll have a summary of it uh, up on Oil and Gas 360. But all the ships coming in from... Uh, the Iranian ship first reaches Venezuela with no sign of U.S. threat. Uh, the first five tankers loaded with gasoline sent from Iran has reached Venezuelan waters. Um, Late Saturday. This happened last night. This is yes. early hours weekend stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, this is big time stuff, you know, when they're no, and it's, it's not being uh, the if the sanctions are not uh, impressed that goes right back into other things that affect oil prices. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's interesting because they're in a fuel crunch right now. Venezuela, you know, has theoretically elected a democratic governor, Juan Gallo, who is being shut out of government by, by currently the president in quotes, president Nicolas Maduro, even though most all of the free nations in the world have declared Juan Gallo the acting government, like they basically disavowed. So it's, it's really hard to call, you know, Madro the president, but we'll do it. We, we won't even, no, he doesn't even get that title from us. He's just Madro. He's bad guy, bad guy. Cause he's killing them right now. They're in a fuel crunch. And I think they're going to let this happen. I my, my guess is that the, they're going to let this little, they're going to let these tankers come in. They're going to let this fuel get in there as sort of a sign of good faith. I mean, we know we covered this months ago, but there was, um, um, they, they, there are multiple, basically, you know, the Venezuelan border, the only, there's only four or five ways to get in and they're all huge, um, not tunnels. I can't, I'm, bridges. I don't, space in the word bridge. I talk for 45 minutes. I can't come up with the word bridge. They've got bridges that all go in them. There's only like a couple ways to get in and they're all blocked off. And the U S has aid sitting on the other side of them and they refuse to get it. So, I mean, I think this is a sign of good faith on the Americans. Let them get some, I mean, excellent point. fuel, get some fuel. I think this is a, a, maybe a sign of good faith, but yeah, it is. There's, there's a, there's the a, article does, the article does say because they have so much, uh, shortage in gasoline it is a social issue um and the tankers appear to hold what would be two or three weeks worth of gasoline for venezuela pretty important so good excellent point michael yeah and i mean and one of the biggest things is is that there's five ships about three and a half days behind just showed up so i i, I think this is big from a standpoint of you know from an international you know this covers not just international news this but international world relations i mean now you're involving the Iranian government, Venezuela. Like I said, I think it's a sign of, of, of good faith. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it'll be very interesting to see whether these Iranian tankers um, have been doing two to three weeks, like you mentioned, of gasoline, which will we'll be back in this joint in three in two to three weeks. What else do you got? Um, we also had Putin. Uh, you always gotta love him. Uh, yeah, what's he doing now? 
Oh, he's, you know, when you, when you sit back and take a look there, you and I have enjoyed uh, President Trump's tweet and you got to love Putin. So on, on uh, Putin, he's got an article out, uh, actually came out from uh, Bloomberg in Moscow. Uh, Putin says deadline for plan to support Russian oil industry. So he's looking at subsidizing his oil industry due to this price war going yeah. on. And uh, he said they will move ahead fully in line with the deal in order to help do this. So he got a big thing in this article, the uh, oil field and gas, Russia has put in uh, some serious price issues because of all of the other um, natural gas folks in Europe tired of being held hostage from yeah. his pipeline on natural gas. This is now putting in, he is now in some real dire straits of low pricing. He's having to finance more of his own oil companies to keep them alive. And then you have the people that are starting to uh, buy from the Leviathan field in um, Israel. Whole big wild thing from Putin. No, he's got him. So he's got himself in a love triangle. The, the the love triangle between him, Saudi, OPEC. It's incredible. The U.S. That and, that game of monopoly is unbelievable. Oh, it's crazy. So uh, this will be on Oil and Gas 360. Yeah, all summer. these articles, please find oilandgas360.com. Um, when we look at the levels for crude oil for the week, you know, close market close 33.25. Really pivot point for the week, 31.50, 31.95. So we're about $2 above where we think the pivot point, which is the big way. In my opinion, I, I, I choose my pivot point based upon where just the biggest volume dunk is. So that was where the, you know, you know, the most, it was 18, 19th and 20th was really the days it hung out in that 30, $32 level. We recently bumped up, we touched 30, um, 4.36. And it was like 34.50 was the high, 34.60 um, was the high for the week. Um, the levels on the upside, if you're a bull, I mean, 34, 36, I think is a good level. You're really anything above that. Who really knows? Remember, we saw the gap down from 42 to 35. Um, so, and we haven't seen that 34 to 35 in a, you know, 20 years, 15, you know, I think you may have touched down there a little bit. There's some volume of is. It's tough to find. Um, I mean, if we go back, you know, if we go back crude oil all the years, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to find a price, um, is definitely a uh, a chunk there. So, I mean, a, that is a. I'm not going to speculate the levels in between that. If 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 it does trade above 35 bucks and we get into that gap zone of what happened, um, I will be. You know, obviously, I you know I'm not going to be trading that section. So if you're looking at getting in at those levels, it's just remember I don't. I couldn't tell you what's happening. I don't. It's hard to set levels when specifically on my side, there's no volume to base it off. If you're a bear, which, you know, spoiler alert, that's going to be my bias for the week. I'm actually a little bearish on oil. I think we've reached sort of the, the, the crest. I don't think we're going down to negative pricing. I don't think we're necessarily going down below 20 bucks. But I think if we saw oil dip below into the high 20s, I wouldn't be necessarily surprised. I think 3273, 3201, 31.30. 49 in the downside, I think are good levels to watch for. And I think you could see anywhere 28.92. The level I'm looking for is 27.90, but we will get into that in the 360 official, non-official fund. When we look at the COT, that's the next thing we have to look at. Um, this is something actually I want to ask Nick Barry about because he was mentioning this to me that managed money on the hedge fund side cut contracts last week, which is very interesting. You would have thought hedge funds and professionals adding long contracts 
guess oils continue to be low, but they're actually cutting their longs, which is sort of a sign that in my opinion, I think hedge funds think 30, 34, 35 bucks is the cap. And that's partly my, my bias is on the short side this week, because you might see some more of that hedge fund money continue to flow out. They also cut their shorts though, but those are mostly people probably cutting their shorts that they had on from, you know, 15 bucks. And I think a lot of people got eaten out of shorts last week. So I think you've seen a lot of shorts cut and a lot of specifically longs cut because I think people are just a little scared. They don't see the upside anymore. And that's really all I've got for the week upcoming in oil and gas. You got anything more before we move into the fund? I think we've had a lot of coverage here. We have had a lot of coverage. So I think it's time to go ahead and move in into the 360 official, non-official fund. But before we do that, as always, the lawyers make us say this so we don't get sued. As always, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Everybody on the show, me, Michael Tanner, Stu, Stuart, Turley, invest money for our own account. And we do not manage any outside money. We do not give investment advice. We do not offer securities or have any involvement on the regulated side of the industry. Investment is risky and you can and will lose all of your principal. That being said, Stu, how's your portfolio looking? Pretty mediocre. <laughs> That's okay. Mine's looking mediocre as well. You know, I'm not going to cut anything on that. You and I had talked on uh, Friday that uh, I'm redoing and taking a look at some of mine. My Duke Energy is really hanging hanging in there, and uh, I really am feel, still feeling strong about my LNG mm -hmm. Geopark. I'm still hanging tough in there, but uh, Rattler I'm out of. I'm almost out of everything else and uh, out of Enphase, so okay. uh, still still hanging tough with Duke and LNG and Geopark. I've got about four other picks I'm working on. Okay. Tomcat's out till around Tuesday or Wednesday. He's going to tip his, uh, we're going to have a chat, see what he's got coming up after that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love it. Um, for me, the only thing I'm doing, obviously I'm in Bonanza Creek. I'm up about $2 per share. So ooh, 120 bucks. Great job. Um, I'm obviously, I got two contracts on natural gas, natural gas, $1.76 is my average entrance points at $1.73. So we've lost a little bit on that. I'm short in CL for the week. Um, obviously commodity futures are going to be trading today. Uh, tonight world oil markets don't close down because of memorial day so i'm going to go ahead and pick up a short here probably when the market opens about three four o'clock specifically sunday afternoon i'm just going to kind of ride that boy all week as a portfolio short um put my money where my mouth is that's where my bias is i don't think we're going to get above 34 35 bucks and you know sitting at 33 25 i may see what the market does originally um, when it right opens, but I'm looking to get in and find a level, maybe 35, 65, maybe get up. Maybe if it does get up to 34, 36, find a level to short and ride that all week. I know we're running long, but um, do you think that the holiday weekend, if everybody got out and did a lot of demand, would cause Wall Street to like the oil price? Um, I mean, I think, I don't know. My thing is only retail investors I mean, specifically why you should not trade commodities futures on, or if, if, if you are trading on Monday, but you can trade certain markets, you can trade gold, you can trade Forex, you can trade stuff, you know, you can trade not US stocks, but you can trade European stocks, you can trade the Chinese market, you do whatever you want. Right. No professionals are doing it. Big banks, big professional traders, they're all home. 
The only people who are trading are retail investors. Who knows what the average retail investor is thinking? How do you gauge right. what a retail investor is thinking? They're just pressing buttons left and right. So I think it's a horrible day to trade. I'd recommend just taking the day off if you're a day trader. Professionals like Tomcat, who's a professional day trader, he's taking the whole day off. He's just saying, I'm, right. not, I'm not even going to focus on oil. I was talking about next week because if okay. the whole demand cycle, if everybody traveled okay. this weekend with demand coming in, that was my question. I apologize. Yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see the traffic consumption numbers, um, see how that looks. I've actually been looking at, I've found some really cool data on um, turnstile, New York City turnstile, uh, what is it? Not the subway, like turnstile subway right. data. To, and you can actually, I'm, I'm trying to put together a visualization where you can kind of track the movements. It's almost like a, our people oh, cool. increasing movement. It's really cool, actually. It's a, it's a data set that I found, oh, two, three weeks ago that I've been trying to work with. Really, really cool stuff. And I think you're seeing people begin to move around a little bit. I think is I, I, I don't know. I just think there's so much, I think, I think there's been so much positive news last week and oil's been on a two-week, 10-day bull run that I think you're finally seeing an exhale. And I think you might see, especially on a short week, um, for institutional side, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think you could see a depression. Do I think we necessarily get down to 25 bucks? No, I think 30 is probably the floor. Maybe $27 is maybe, maybe the floor. I don't see us getting that low. I think 30 to $35 is an accurate price for the oil and gas business right now, just based on where demand currently is. I think that's a decent price for it's where it should be. Um, so I don't think, I don't think you're going to push it above to 40, 45 bucks. I don't see that. Even if demand comes roaring back, I think you're going to need to see three, four, five weeks of that before it's really going to make that leap. What's the Kreskin got? Kreskin, 32.81. 32.81. Well, good. That means we're making a little bit of money on the shorts. So, because it's 32.35 right now. That's about all I'm doing. We are running long, though, but we're going to give you a sweet, sweet show. We're going to go ahead and call up our friends, Nick and Steven. First, we got Steven on the line here, so we're going to go with him first. Appreciate you join in the show, Stephen. It's been a couple of weeks since we chatted with you. So like I said, taking some time here out on this Memorial Day weekend. First off, happy Memorial Day to you. And really what I had, the first question I got to ask you is it's, it has to be about storage. There's so many other things I want to get to, but it really has to be about storage because last time we chatted with you, storage was a huge issue in this sort of two-week gap. Storage is now not really an issue and we've had draws from Cushing for two weeks. So give us an update on what's going on on the, on the storage side of things. <laughs> oh that's good yeah like it i mean we said this for the past i don't know three four weeks right it's like storage is a pretty cut and dry boring topic until it's not and and then everyone's talking about it and then nobody does <laughs> so um and that's exactly what we're seeing right now and the reason is because there has been some drawdown of storage um you know and, and so that helps the united states is opening up lots of different communities and uh so people are active and burning hydrocarbons. So that that means refineries are able to start refining and, and drawing down storage, which is good. No, that is that is really good. I was it was just shocking to see two weeks in a row we had a we had a we had we had a draw from Cushing, which is which is good to see. I see those levels drop back down. And, 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 you know, my kind of prediction moving forward is I, is I doubt we're going to see negative pricing. Do you think we're going to come across negative pricing as this contract rolls over when it relates to storage? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think for one, we have just because of the recent drawdowns, like we have some available storage. Um, and I think uh, traders are just also wary, right? They're, they're smarter now during this contract period than they were last period. So that combination, uh, we won't see it. You, you'll still have 
some areas that have uh, constraints with, when it comes to storage. And so they are going to feel some downward pressure in some areas, but not near as what we saw, you know, in the last month. Well, that's good. Well, I think everybody will rest easy on that. You know, one thing I wanted to, to mention is, 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 is I was sitting on an interview last week with, with Spruill, who are, who's a really good market research expert. And one of the big things they talked about was, was the global LNG market was heating up insanely. Germany's building two huge LNG export facilities. And how is the U, U.S. LNG market looking right now? Oh, it's good. I mean, like weekly, we hear updates um about the lng products going on so patronus is as you know and you've told talked about this before it's just like we we have um you know pretty much anything that has to do with midstream we we have our fingers in the, the pie and we consult in it you know the lng is um it is this big part of the industry that's classic midstream and i, I have to tell you it's becoming more and more popular and part of that has to do with market forces around natural gas. And another has to do with, you know, the United States is not just the only place that's starting to open up. Other nations are too, which means global demand is going up. And um, LNG, I'll explain why LNG is seeing uh, like some heat up, maybe possibly more than crude oil, because um, globally there's a, but there, there's this effort to try to, curb emissions or make things carbon neutral or carbon friendly. And as far as hydrocarbons goes, there's nothing better than natural gas. Liquefied, uh, well, just natural gas, right? But um, the emerging mm -hmm. economies don't have a lot of access to natural gas, like meaning it's not local. And so they resort to LNG to get their hands on it. And um, because those economies are growing, the demand's growing, um, and they're seeing a lot of benefit for purchasing relatively cheap natural gas and clean burning. Like that combination is just leading to this, this upward rise mm -hmm. in, in LNG. So the U S has some great projects coming up. I mean, one of them, uh, you know, one of them based out of New Orleans, Louisiana is point LNG. Um, so there's a 600 acre site in the mm -hmm. uh, Louisiana Plaquemine parish and um, it's going to allow for a Q Max LNG carrier. It's going that's just give you a sense. That's one of the largest in the world. Mm -hmm. um, that is going to allow for a lot of future expansion up to 12, um, you know, 12 million tons per annum. So that, that that's a lot. And then uh, another project is based in Alaska of all places. <laughs> so, um, Interesting. The, Even in this environment. It, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so Alaska in Anchorage, uh, it's called Alaska Gas Development. Um, there's just a lot of gas. It's, the gas from the Prudhoe Bay on the North Slope, mm -hmm. uh, they're going to connect it to this facility with 800 miles of pipe, which already exists, but they're applying for a permit through FERC uh, to be able to export, right? And so the facility is going to have the capacity for 20 million tons per annum of LNG, um, which will be huge. That's adding a lot of capacity. And that's on top of the the projects that are closer to being finished by like Chenier or mm -hmm. uh, some of these others on the, the Gulf Coast. So LNG, I love it, is is, is, is going to be hot. And that's good to see because, as, like you mentioned, there's just a lot of different projects coming online. And, and it'll be interesting to see how it moves forward. One of the things I, I want to ask you about, because I think it's going to be relevant coming up here, is, you know, we've seen oil been on this 
oddly two, three week bull run. We're sitting here recording $33 oil right now. As you know, we know shut-ins have happened, but as we see oil continue to creep back up, companies are going to start to turning back on these wells. You know, Petronas Energy not only deals with the midstream, but I know you guys work in, in sort of the gathering and, and that side of the industry. Are you seeing anything when, when, when operators start beginning to turn these wells back on? Is there anything people should be thinking about in this environment of, you know, maybe wells and more production coming back online for maybe a gathering and a midstream set side? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So probably one of the biggest is uh, when, like capacity modeling. So your gathering systems, intricate network of pipelines, and uh, compressor stations and other facilities like gas plants or um, you know dehydration stations and all this kind of stuff and those are designed to run in steady state at a certain flow rate uh, especially some older facilities like the turn down isn't very good so if you start shutting in a lot of wells in a certain area and the, the flow rates drop off you're losing a lot of efficiencies maybe you're seeing a lot of issues operating those those assets and so um, turn down modeling is going to be uh, important if you're still shutting things in. And then as you're ramping back up and turning stuff on, um, you know, turn down modeling applies to the ramp up period too. And because you're going to see issues, I think one of the issues that you see, um, especially on a gas pipeline, is when gas is moving slow through a pipe because you start shutting stuff in, like liquids mm -hmm. condense and start settling in the bottom. And then when you turn stuff back on, uh, that change in flow rates left all that liquid and, and it, it's got to go somewhere so it usually fills up the like the um, they call them slug catchers at a gas plant or a, like a big compressor station it's just like this huge wave of liquid that comes crashing into the facility Ooh. and so if you if you don't want to have issues with that you can imagine there would be issues and you need to have your turn down modeling um and your ramp up modeling done um and why does this matter like why why it's good to mention is because uh, it, it it's a touchy subject, but it's got to be said. Like in our uh, industry, uh, you know, management teams were faced with reducing cost quickly, and they just didn't have a lot of runway. And so, the favorite way to do it in our industry, sad to say, is just letting people go. Right? Like the biggest cost, and many times, is GNA. So, uh, you don't even have time to evaluate. Like, well, who is handling our turn down modeling? Who should we keep around? Like some of those conversations don't happen. You just say like, we got to let go a thousand people. So you uh, thousand gone, boom. And yeah. it stinks. I, I'm, it's, it's not the right way to do it, um, but it, it's a trend and it seems to be the favorite way to do it. Um, and why that matters is because you're left shorthanded. And so in a lot of ways your engineering um, teams have been left with a gap. Well, Petronas, we, we address this issue because we have an engineering team. They're top notch. They, we do this, we do this kind of modeling efficiently. And so um, some of our clients have mm -hmm. really liked the services we provide because they, they drop their GNA cost by slashing a thousand jobs. And then they realize, Oh, cred, we need we still, help. We, yeah, we, still have to, we still have to actually produce some. We still have to gather some. It's, it's, it is, it's a weird cyclical cycle it gets in. I don't mean to interrupt, but no, I, it, it's unbelievable yeah. the sick cycle that it goes through. Yeah, exactly. So, um, like our, our, we, our clients like the, the product that we provide and it's really needed because mm -hmm. it's a rude awakening. If you just try to ramp it up and then stuff starts shutting down or you get liquids or waxes or hydrates in weird places and stuff. And so, um, 
if you want a smooth operation, you really need to spend some time with the right people who know turn down modeling. Yeah, no, I think that's that's super smart. I know I turned down modeling is something that I'm just becoming familiar with now, so I, I love always learning new stuff. On a compliance side, though, because I know you guys deal in this realm, with all of these wells being shut in, what are are there some of the what are some of the regulations around this, and 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 how are operators handling some of the compliance issues around all of these shut-ins that might still stay shut in even with this higher oil price? Oh yeah, awesome question. Like it, so as far as compliance goes, like depending on how you shut in your well, like you you might still be obligated to do things like emissions testing or other Quad OA compliance, and that's if you're not familiar with Quad OA, it's just it's a standard that was put into effect, like significant change since 2015. Pretty much any facility since 2015 is subject to some mm-hmm. stricter emissions guidelines. Even if the facility is shut in, if there's still you know pressure on it, there's still obligations you got to meet. And um, like this is also it's touchy to say this, but like in this environment where there's a lot of people who want to justify their job because they want to, you know, make sure they're still working. That, that's the same story with some of the environmental uh, regulatory agencies. You have mm-hmm. people who, uh, you know, have their workload reduced and they want to make sure that they're, they're staying valuable or justifying their presence. And so um, they're, they're going to be sniffing around mm-hmm. for, for infractions, right? So they're, makes they have sense. More time it does. It, it makes sense. Like you said, it's touchy, but it's it, it it's it's so true yeah yeah and it, it, and it's a good thing i mean like they're there for a reason right to ensure compliance it just means that other operators who who kind of got complacent with this like well we kind of know that maybe we're not 100 percent compliant but it's okay like it, they'll slap our wrist and we'll fix it when we get to it like that that will have to change going forward because there's just more scrutiny in this environment which and so when people say, well, we really want to defer costs because of, you know, the price of oil and whatnot, so we're just going to delay these things. I mean, that's the wrong mentality to have because what you're going to have is you're going to be slapped with fines. So if you have any question about that, I mean, Patronus consults on that as well. Um, and so please reach out, you know, let us know. No, please you visit. Do- we love us some Patronus <laughs> Energy. You, 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 you mentioned costs, and, and I think we all know this. One of the quickest ways to reduce costs is, is as you mentioned, GNA. If they've, if a company comes to you and has either already cut GNA or doesn't want to cut GNA, and they ask you, hey, hey, you know, Stephen, what can we do as a way to continue to reduce costs? Is there anything that you can provide them in, in your guys' expertise, maybe besides just, you know, unfortunately saying, hey, cut, cut staff? Oh yeah, <laughs> I love that you asked this because this is our, these are our favorite clients and and honestly um, the most successful clients <laughs> are the ones that approach this problem with this mindset. I get it. Sometimes you have to cut jobs, but um, if you look at other other options uh, with same cost, I think you'll find that there's some other ways before you get to that point. And one of those um, is utility costs. Just think about it, like how much mm-hmm. it costs from elect- electricity fuel gas yeah. um maybe it's flare gas that you're just wasting okay. um or um you know pretty much anything that you consider to be a utility like electricity is a big one right and so this is a time period in which um you know you can look at those utility costs and reduce them often in a very significant way and um just w- which in turn increases your EBITDA so it, it improves your balance sheet health 
Um, this is a period where, you know, it's, it, you can renegotiate power agreements. You can reevaluate. You know, some people are considering, um, you know, where they're getting their power and what, what, whether they can bring some of that expertise in-house and actually generate their own or, you know, instead of like flaring gas, um, putting things on their facilities that will capture that and um, make make heat or electricity that they can use. So all those kinds of initiatives adds up, especially if you have hundreds of wellhead facilities or thousands of them, right? And uh, often is a more palatable solution uh, and quite frankly, just better for your company than just slashing GNA, right? Yeah. Just by, by firing people. No, I think it's, you know, it's something that you don't think of, but the amount of energy and electrical and utilities costs to go into actually producing oil and gas, it, it makes sense that a lot of these you can go in and renegotiate. It and I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think there's a lot of, well, I'm sure there's a lot of executives listening right now wondering, I don't know how I'm going to continue to cut costs because unfortunately that's what these management teams are requiring. You know, so, so I love yeah. that. I'll have to say too, like a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of companies are based out of Houston, loads of them. Um, and in Texas, is, as far as the power markets goes, is, is deregulated. It's fully deregulated on, you know, electricity and gas. And so um, people, especially if you have like a high rise, you know, a, a bigger company like your Oxy or West or, uh, you know, you just have like a thousand people in an office downtown. It's like, you don't realize how much power goes to your electricity bill and and all that you know, like we can be renegotiated. I mean, it's a perfectly deregulated market, perfectly competitive. And so you might not be getting the best deal on just what like your power provider for your office space. So it, no, um, it does. It's the value chain that I find hilarious in. Not to get us too sidetracked before I let you go, but my dad is an aerospace engineer for a really large national defense company. And I remember one time he accidentally got CC'd on an email that had the coffee costs for his office, which was like a four campus office. He said it was disgusting the amount they're spending. The government spends on what you would think of just coffee supplies to keep their engineers producing stuff. So it's, it's, it's their costs can add up anywhere. and It doesn't necessarily have to be GNA. You know, but, but before I let you go, is, is there anything that we, you know, you know that we're missing here? I know, I know we haven't really chatted with you for two weeks. So if there's anything on the horizon, or you think that you need to keep people up to date with, I think now's the time. Yeah, I mean, LNG is going to continue to to be a hot topic going forward. Like, so, um, like a, a company watch again, like Magnolia LNG. Um, they're they're doing projects. They have some expansions coming up. And, and an interesting history so look at check them out um and i'll i'll have more about lng next time around like the, the there's some projects and some cool. uh, announcements coming that are dropping this week and and we'll we'll get some more info on it awesome well we appreciate it we will hold you to that next week we appreciate you taking your time out of your day happy uh fourth of july excuse me not fourth of july i'm gonna cut that out um so um it's not the fourth of july Happy Memorial Day. We appreciate um, you joining us, Stephen. We'll see you next week. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Great stuff there from Stephen. We appreciate him joining the show. But we have Nick Berry also hot on the line. Nick is our financial and midstream guru when it comes to finance. He has both knowledge of both the upstream and the midstream side of the finance business. And it's been about two weeks since we've chatted with you two, man. And uh, 
really in that last two weeks, when it comes to there, there's been really small stories that we've picked at. You know, we covered ESG heavily, but really the past two weeks there was no really lead story, in it, and we just kind of whipped around the oil field. The only biggest thing I can talk about is just really demand that's going on right now. I just wonder if you could update us on on where you see demand going, because that's really about the the biggest thing I see moving forward. I think that's about the biggest thing that's happened since you know you know we've chatted. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike, and and completely agree. Been a kind of a quiet compared to what we had experienced, uh, which was quite the roller coaster. Quiet two weeks. See demand coming back nicely. You got. Oil prices with a with a strong rally um, above a thirty dollar level, um, but yeah, nothing nothing crazy. Um, I think it should be interesting. You're starting to reach that point where where we're starting to see supply. You know, once you are reaching a thirty dollar thirty dollar WTI price, you'll start to see supply come back in the market, um, and then we're headed into summer months, which is you know demand for travel across the u.s or or maybe internationally we'll see how that that shakes out um and you could you know hopefully we start to continue to see some strength so in your in in you know in 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 your opinion 30 dollar you know you're sitting you're sitting 32 33 dollar oil i mean you 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 actually think production's kind of be coming back online at this price i think you i think you had a lot of a lot of operators that um, either shut in production or choked back production. Um, I don't think you'll see, I don't think you'll see rigs being added. I think that's a pretty aggressive standpoint, but I think you will start to see definitely operators that will open up the chokes or or turn wells back online and you'll start to see some increase in production. Um, I don't think that oil was low enough for long enough to see like, a really substantial mm-hmm. amount of production shut in. So um, we'll have to just see how much that lever can be turned. Yeah, and it'll be interesting how long these 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 executives at these shale oil companies can basically sit on their hands and not try to <laughs> turn these wells back on because, you know, I, yeah. my, I, I would tell you, even at 30 buck oil, like to keep some of that production you've had off just for a little bit longer, keeping it, in, but that's interesting. And, and, and mm-hmm. something that you forwarded me that I thought was really interesting was, was, you know, I, we, we talk a lot on the podcast about the commitment of traders and, and talking about what, what hedge funds are doing. And I know if you listen to the show, you mm-hmm. know that I, I'm not, I'm not very, I'm not bullish on hedge funds ability to trade oil and gas. They've generally not done a decent job of it, but we saw mm-hmm. something really interesting when them, you know, at once this level of $30 got, we saw a lot more selling and that's sort of why you saw, you know, today we saw 2% drop off 34 to 31, but you really saw it two weeks of extreme bullishness. We got to that $30 level and price just hung out. We saw a lot of selling. I know you, you, you know, I think that's indicative of some stuff moving forward. Yeah, completely agree. It's pretty good insight into how these hedge funds view the world. And I think that around the $30 price range for, for WTI is, is what they kind of see as a good time that um, it's almost a break even for the, for the best acreage in the U.S. And I think they see that, you know, if things peak much higher or a little bit higher, you're going to start to see again, maybe some drilling or, or increased supply. So I think they're viewing this as kind of like, you know, a, a short-term short-term um, peak or flattening out of uh, WTI price, definitely. 
Yeah, because I mean, we haven't seen, you know, really when you look at the, you know, you look at just a price action chart of crude, you went, we went from 42 to 36 with a snap of a finger. We haven't seen 42 to 36 in a hot minute. So there's really no mm -hmm. reference point. That's why, you know, I, I agree with you. And I love that you brought this up that that $30 level is, is acting as a cap. Now, hedge funds, do they necessarily know what they're doing? But they are professionals. So they move markets. Mm -hmm. They trade a lot. I think that your uh, article mentioned about, um, 19 million, you know, they're selling about 19 million barrels yep. in yep. Con, uh, equivalent contracts. That's a hefty, that's moving markets right yeah. there. So that's a, uh, that's a big chunk right there. Yeah, that is. And, uh, you know, it looks like for a lot of them, um, buy at the right time could have been a, a, a solid investment, 19 million barrels. You know, it's, uh, I would have been able to like to, um, purchase that amount of inventory, uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, about imagine ago, having that inventory but... in negative pricing. Um, yeah, I don't. I, don't, I think I don't there's know where two more things. It, but... Yeah, no. I got a hot tub out in my backyard. We just start. Uh, we'll just start filling it up in my hot that tub. That could be our storage solution right there. Hot tub solutions by Nick <laughs> Barry and Michael Tanner. Call us. You can yeah. find us on LinkedIn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh, two more things I want to hit. One is actually a really really cool case study that was done by a. Uh, a guy that is a friend of the show. Uh, he writes for the Reserve Report. Mm -hmm. Matt Sarah, we mm -hmm. chatted with him. But before I we we, we dive into that because there's some really interesting. I know I just wanted to bring up that you know one of the big things we had been talking about in the M and A space was one we think you know I, you know we're, I'm fairly bullish from the natural gas M and A market. I don't necessarily know if we have any solid uh, case studies to move forward, but but that's just my feeling as we move forward. I think you see a lot of the production numbers. But one of the things was Oxy. One of the biggest reasons they were able to quality Anadarko was. Mm -hmm. Goal mm -hmm. to sell 15 billion in assets. Yeah. The their Ghana asset sale with total fell through. That that cannot be mm -hmm. good for their balance. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's another 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 sad story for Oxy as they continue to be in a tough position. You know, they've we've they've been a recurring topic on the show. But um, yeah, we were talking earlier. I mean, 15 billion dollars of assets. I don't even know if they could. You know, that's that's a that's a very that seems like a very optimistic scenario for them to be able to sell that, sell those assets of, and get some kind of that something close to that value. So, I mean, it's just tough times again. I mean, I, I think they're going to be struggling and to, to sell anything um, at a price, you know, where they're, they're willing to accept. Yeah. I, you know, who knows if they even have 15 billion of assets that they yeah. can unload. So, um, all right. So I, I want to move over into this case study because I think it's super interesting and mm -hmm. if you're not already following or subscribing to the reserve report. I highly recommend you do it. You can find it reserve report. Yeah. At uh, substack.com. It's, it's probably, in my opinion, it's one of the best newsletters that's covering U.S. shale from mm -hmm. an energy market, energy trading perspective. I think they do a, you know, the, the group of guys who put this on, specifically the guy who puts this on, Matt, does a really good job of both covering some of that financial trading news that you need to know, mm -hmm. but also looking at oil and gas from a, a management and executive level. And, 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 and each week he runs a, what wells work at $30 a barrel. He's uh, if you've been following him for a little bit, you know, he suspended that because we weren't at 30 bucks. We were way below. <laughs> but now that we're back at 30, we're bringing them, you know, he, he brings back up and he, and, and he looked at Concho this week. And and really yeah. what, you know, the, you know, is just over, here's the rules of the game. Sunk costs are sunk and they're also excluded. We're using 2019 Vinches Wells and WTI. It's a flat 30 bucks. And he ran it mm -hmm. on all of their pads and clusters. And mm -hmm. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine pads or cluster was ran on. All PD tens less 
then zero. Only one of them was positive, and it was a Timberwolf State pad had <laughs> three wells on it and was PVD 10 of $1 million. Boom. I thought Concho Farmer. had that. My takeaway from this, and maybe you can, you, you, you can educate, Concho's got to have – I thought it's tier one acreage. Yeah. No, Concho, uh, definitely really solid acreage in the Permian, always been – um, a big player and, and, and drill some great wells, have some high IPs and, and great returns as well. Um, yeah, no, the, the reserve report, really interesting. And I think my big takeaway from, from this study that, that was ran at $30 a barrel um, is pretty much showing, you know, we're, we're close to, even in the best, I mean, you, you know, tier one acreage in the Permian is best, probably best acreage in the U.S., I think most people would agree and and that if that's you're 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 close at thirty dollars oil but again you're still not you're not raking in the cash so um yeah don't expect to see guys adding rigs and but you're you're slightly approaching that um break-even point which is just which is just crazy to think about because i you know when i think of concho i think of prime permian basin acreage i mean that's literally what's on their website it's just it's so to see and that's and that's not necessarily a knock against them this is i think you know but really what you mentioned this brings up this is a knock against everybody else like even if you have good acreage you're not getting it 30 bucks your your pv 10s are not looking good so you know you know (laughs) so really it's that and like you mentioned it's that 30 40 50 dollar barrel i do know that concho has a generally to hire a hire a bunch of Texas tech engineers. So maybe that's something to do there. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there as a thing. Uh, you know, I think you, I think that must be it. That must be, they're no, gotta... they didn't go to school of mines, you know, it's, nah, they exactly. didn't take, yeah. I mean, they didn't take our. Yeah. Our, if they went to our, mines, they would just be doing right. three way collars all day. So I don't know what's worse. <laughs> yeah, man. Maybe we should start a uh, petroleum engineering department. Uh, we should. We'll, we'll figure out. We'll the oil and gas 360 classroom. Join up, me, yeah, yeah, Prof- yeah, yeah. Professor Barry showing. Yeah, yeah. So, anything else? I think we've 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 taken up. I think enough of your time here today. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you think that we need to we need to watch out for? Monday markets are closed. You know, mm-hmm. jokes on mm-hmm. everybody. Just a little inside baseball. We record this before Monday, even though you're listening yeah. to it on Monday. Yeah. So uh, anything you got planned either for the long weekend we should be watching for or something that, that we should keep our eyes out? Well, I don't have any very exciting weekend plans, so I won't bore you with that. But, um, yeah, I hope everyone has a good, uh, a good, a good holiday weekend. Um, yeah, I think, I think we should start to see, you know, I, I wouldn't expect to see oil prices go much higher in some, unless some crazy shift in, in demand, which, you know, who knows could happen, but yeah, I, I would definitely keep watching the natural gas space. I think some of these, these solid players with good core acreage are probably looking at a lot of um, um, good add-ons right now. Yeah, no, and we'll definitely be keeping um, an eye on that and we will be having you cover all of this every week. Nick, we appreciate you joining us. It's been a while since we heard from you. So thank you for taking the time out today. Thanks for having me as always, Mike. High level stuff there from Nick Barry. And I'm looking at the time here. We are over an hour and 25, and I appreciate you guys hanging with us that long. I'm going to go ahead and let you finish up your beautiful Memorial Day. I hope you had a great Memorial Day weekend. I hope you had some fun. Thank you to all the veterans out there, and we will see you guys tomorrow for the digital ticker.